What is up? What is going on? Welcome in to the Threequel podcast. We are ready to wake up in the real world, or are we waking up in the Matrix? We don't know. We're about to find out. You're about to find out on the other side of the song. What is up, everybody? Welcome into the threequel. As always, I am one of your three hosts, Ethan Klein, along with my co-hosts, Brad Miller and Mike Duranik. Uh, we are diving into the world, and what a uh, perfect phrasing that is for this film of the 1999 I guess we'll call it a classic. I I mean, it it is definitely something that had a pretty big cultural uh, relevance in its time. The Matrix uh, coming out in March of 1999. We're kicking off the month of March with this film. Before we get into this film, uh, I'll just ask, as I always do, how are you guys doing? I am doing well. Uh, hanging out here in my basement this time, first time recording down here. So uh, we'll see how it goes. But yeah, thanks for asking. Doing well. Doing great. Uh, had a, a good weekend thus far and excited to, to talk about this movie and get your guys' thoughts and, and your analysis. Yes, definitely an interesting film to analyze. Um, w- we, I think we have yet to really do two movies in the same vein. And this definitely keeps that trend going. Uh, we, we had a lot of over-the-top action last week with Deadpool. We lean into that this week again. Of Obviously, there's tons of action in this film. But the extra side of it, whereas Deadpool was a comedy superhero side of things, this is a very... Uh, sci-fi, introspective, a lot of uh, thinking and thought that goes into the ideals behind this film. So we still have yet to really cross too many streams in this very unique film in its own way in The Matrix. Uh, Let's just, let's dive into it. The question I always start with, how did you guys come to see this movie for the first time? And do you remember what your opinion was uh, back the first time you saw it or what opinion you carried in to this particular rewatch? Uh, I was late to the game with this one. Um, It did not uh, strike my fancy when it first came out. I don't really know why. Uh, I was probably about 2001, I believe, maybe even 2002 when I first saw it and. uh, I was sitting in my uh, my girlfriend's living room and watched it with her and her family. So that was my first uh, first experience with the Matrix. Yeah. So for me, uh, there was a, a group within my group of friends that uh, they saw it first, and they were huge fans. They they could not would not stop talking about it, talking it up. Um, and so, you know, I, I didn't see it in the theater, but one of them got, I, I believe, probably a VHS copy of it uh, pretty early out and when it uh, was released uh, on VHS and we watched it and I, I, you know, I came in with these huge expectations and I have to say from that first time I walked away rather unimpressed. I thought that there was a ton of potential in the movie, um, but I didn't find the, the script to be particularly engaging. I, I think it, what it did exceptionally well, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in terms of some of the, the choreography and things like that. Uh, that stood out, but I, I found the the actual uh, plot a little lacking. Yeah, so obviously this was not one that I saw in theaters at uh, three going on four years old. Um, even though I will say, I think in terms of R-rated movies, I mean, this, this could have been a PG-13 movie in a lot of ways, but uh, definitely still not one I was watching at that age. I know I saw portions of it, maybe the entirety of it on TV uh, at at different times growing up. But the first time I actually remember sitting down and watching it, 
uh, was with my stepbrother in high school. And I think I, I suffered from the same issues that Mike did where I knew the legend of this film and obviously the two films that followed had such a big following, had such a big impact. And when I finally sat down and watched it, I remember just feeling bogged down by trying to understand what is the matrix? What is the real world? And, and not really comprehending that the first time I watched it all the way through. So it made me not want to rewatch it again. Since then, this is probably the third or fourth time I've seen it. And I will say that my opinion in some ways has stayed the same and in some ways has changed. So it'll be interesting uh, to see what we all think heading into this film. I, I think a uh, little bit different, maybe. I think usually we dive into uh, the actors themselves. I want to change it up a little bit and open up our conversation about the movie with, uh, for me, uh, just one of the, the high points of the film, and that is the opening of the film. I want to state that I believe the introduction of Trinity is one of the coolest character introductions in an action movie of all time. Uh, to, to sit and watch a movie that's, you know, 22 years old, and for the effects in that scene to hold up the way that they do. And for her, I mean, she just controls the action in that scene. Carrie Ann Moss doing all that stuff. This is a almost perfect opening for what this movie will end up being. And I, and I wanted to give credit for that. And I didn't know if you guys thought the same way about just how we go right into the action, right into the special effects. And if you thought the same thing that I did. Yeah, I think that... Uh... That really, for me, carried over through the whole thing. I was telling someone earlier today how much, even 22 years later, it, it holds up. The The special effects aren't cheesy. Some of the action scenes aren't cheesy. Um, the The overall meaning and, and uh, message of the film holds up. Like, it's just as important today as it was 22 years ago. So... I think, yeah, basing it off of your premise of the first opening scene, I would carry that into most of the entire movie for myself. But, but yeah, it was definitely uh, the way they draw you in um, and show you exactly what, you know, the characters would be capable of in The Matrix uh, was, was very cool. Yeah, I think in particular, as you dive in the first time, not knowing necessarily a whole bunch about it, and you see this incredible action sequence, it holds up still today, uh, as you noted very well. Um, and you're just kind of sitting there going like, okay, so what is this, right? Uh, you know, it's a it's a very different world, obviously, than, than what we live in. And being able to kind of see the way that uh, she maneuvers through that, the special effects, exceptional, the, the again, the, the fight choreography, exceptional. That is a part of this movie, and I agree with Brad, that I felt like held up extremely well all the way through. 22 years later, if similar effects were released uh, today, and who knows, something similar may be released later this year in the fourth one, uh, I think it would hold up quite well. Yeah, I, I think the only thing that looked 1999 was the scenes in the quote-unquote real world with the robots kind of attacking their ship. But, I mean, it was the best that they could do in 1990. It didn't look cheesy. It just... Now, you know, they'd be able to create some kind of ro mechanical robot with all those arms that you would think they just made the practical thing. Uh, and, but that's not a knock on them. Of course, this was nominated. It was nominated for four Academy Awards, won all four, and all of them were technical things. It was editing, it was special effects, it was sound. And so absolutely not a lot of things from the 90s can carry over to today. There's usually always going to be a scene or two where you just kind of roll your eyes about how bad it looks. And uh, agree with both of you. The, the effects definitely carry through the movie and carry into, I don't know what you guys will end up having as your best scene of the film. But to me, the, the peak effect that carried 22 years over is in my best scene of the film. But we'll get into that later. So I, I mentioned the introduction of Trinity of Carrie Ann Moss. Um, she may end up being my favorite character in the film 
now upon, like I said, this fourth or fifth rewatch, watching it for this podcast. There's plenty of characters in this film. Um, but of course, we, we have to start the conversation with Keanu Reeves. Uh, if I don't know how much deep diving you guys did into the behind the scenes things. Uh, the story that always gets talked about now that I hear about is this was going to be Will Smith. This was offered to Will Smith. Will Smith turned it down. We got Keanu Reeves. And when I think back, obviously I know that he was around before the matrix, but for my generation, I still think that this is right where I go to. When I hear the name Keanu Reeves, I picture Neo. Yeah. I think, uh, Touching on that, and before I jump into that, we also probably should mention how that that badass cell phone did not hold up either. Uh, 20, was that okay? 22 that was years my later. question. I wanted to ask you guys: Were those Nokia's a thing, or did they create those for the movie? Uh, I don't know the answer to that specifically. I never saw anyone with that particular phone. Mike, do you do you happen to know? Well, Brad, I don't. Uh, I don't remember specifically um, if that exact phone was out there. Although I remember designs like that. What I will say is, I do think that that has actually aged all right, because they did do a good job of saying, "Look, th this world is 1999." Right. So uh, that part I didn't find as bad. But uh, those are some pretty cool cell phones. Uh, I don't think I'm going to go back to that design though. Yeah, that uh, I'm perfectly happy with uh, my iPhone uh, as it stands now. But so to to roll it back into Keanu Reeves, I, you know, I was just looking. We're looking through here, and I I didn't even give enough credit to saying he was around before this. I, I knew obviously what I was kind of pushing off to the side when I said that, but it's crazy to think that prior to the Matrix, he was already in, you know, Bill and Ted. Point Break, uh, Speed, you know, he, he was already in all of these big time things. And if you think about like what made Keanu Reeves an action star, it was Point Break and Speed close to a decade before. I mean, nine years before The Matrix was, was Point Break. So to think then he could establish that, but then still have this character in Neo, which we're seeing come this December, 22 years later, he will be playing him for the fourth time in a film. It it's, it's surprising to me because I don't know where you guys are at, but if you would say, Hey, we're going to run it back and make another point break movie, or we're going to get matrix four just for my own personal enjoyment. And because I love kind of bad action movies, throw air quotes around bad, I would probably pick point break too. Oh yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, you know, when I think of, of Keanu, I think of speed uh, and that's probably something to do a little bit with, with my age. I, I think about him in that before I think of the matrix, uh, Brad, do, do you have a similar pullback to him or is the matrix it for you? Um, I think that, uh, what I'll say about this character and, and, uh, Keanu's career is that um, I got a little confused of what you guys were saying because I thought this was actually the birth of John Wick. That wasn't John Wick we were seeing at the end of this movie. And I thought it was been. like it showed why John Wick can't be killed in those films because he can stop bullets and dodge bullets. So now it makes a lot more sense as to uh, – why those other films work. So yeah, I, I just, instead of Neo, I think I'll just refer to him as baby John wick. Um, but to answer your question, Mike, I think that, uh, yeah, for me, it's a, it's a trifecta of speed, Bill and Ted and point break are, uh, when I think back to young Keanu Reeves, that's where, where I go. Um, and then now later in his career, it's, it's John wick. So, the matrix kind of gets lost in uh, lost in the shuffle there for me. Um, and also because it never really held a special place in my heart. It didn't, didn't uh, attribute those characters to him. Like I did point break. And I would like to state for the record, I like point break far more than I've ever liked a matrix movie. Uh, just my mind just goes to dodging bullets. And I think that that is just a credit to, 
Point Break came out four years before I was born and, you know, just, just a timeline thing. But I don't want to discredit uh, the, the dead presidents robbing banks. Please, those, those guys are revered and uh, they, they should be. And Bodie really knew a lot about life. I don't know if we'll ever do Point Break. Maybe the, this is the most we'll ever talk about Point Break on the show. I don't know if that really hits the mark for what we'll talk about. It might, but uh, that, that could be a conversation for a different day. So Keanu Reeves, not the only person in this film. Uh, the other, so if you look at the top billing, the poster that came out for this movie, it was Keanu Reeves and it was Lawrence Fishburne. And this is absolutely, I think, bar none, if I think of Lawrence Fishburne, where my mind goes first, second, and third, before I really think about anything else in his career. I, I think Morpheus before I think of anything else. Uh, for me, for him, it's, uh, it's more Boys in the Hood. Um, he was the father in that movie. and um, But I think for a lot of the same reasons, that, that movie just uh, for a couple years really was up there for me as one of my, my favorite um, rewatches and it's just a it's a great film so i think that's why um that one stands out but but yeah i think uh, right there um in the number two slot or maybe one b is is his portrayal of morpheus and then mike i know your favorite lawrence fishburne performance is biker boys correct well i was gonna i was gonna go to event horizon but you know i guess uh since you know while we're throwing out movies we'll never talk about on this podcast uh no i would agree with you ethan i think for me when i think of uh lawrence i, I think of this movie i think of morpheus I, it was his iconic uh role as i scroll through kind of all the movies uh, that he's been in although he's been in a lot of really good ones yeah, it's interesting how he is, he kind of, I guess, just looking through his uh, filmography here in, in a different way. We've kind of, there's been a theme now running for the threequel here that we, we run into these actors that their name evokes some type of fame that their career, at least for maybe one of us personally, doesn't live up to. And when I hear the name Lawrence Fishburne, I feel as though he has, you know, been the A-list lead guy in a lot of movies. That's just what goes into my mind. But then when you look through the career, it is a lot more side character, character roles, especially something like this where he's Morpheus. He is the second build. He is the mentor to the main character of the film, even though the name Lawrence Fishburne to me for whatever reason in my mind evokes something that should have been maybe a little bit more. So, you know, you had mentioned, uh, Ethan, just this idea of um, Trinity being the actor that you thought uh, you, you walked away from the movie saying, yeah, that was her movie. Um, and I am kind of curious, you know, we, we sidebarred a little bit there on Keanu, but I'm, I'm curious, Brad, what, what your thoughts are on that? Cause I can see an argument for that, uh, but probably not my favorite character in the movie myself. Um, I, you know, I d actually didn't give that much thought before um, before Ethan said it, and I've I've been trying to kind of uh, wrap my head around who I would say kind of uh, won the movie for me, and I think I I don't really, for whatever reason, I don't really like the Morpheus character. Um, so that kind of rules him out. And then, um, yeah, I think, uh, Carrie Ann Moss is right there. Uh, Keanu's right there. Um, and, uh, I mean, even, uh, agent Smith is, you know, he does a really great job in the film. Um, I think my, my favorite character that I'm rooting for, and I'm forgetting his name. Let me see if I can scroll down and find that, but it's the, he's kind of the, um, uh, he's the guy that when they, when they call to, to get back on there, is it, is it tank, not tank? Uh, is it tank? Tank. Yeah. yeah that's um, I think he stands out as kind of my favorite that I'm like rooting for throughout the film too. So I, I think between those uh, characters uh, is who I would kind of go to. So I, my reasoning with saying that, now I've come to the conclusion that Carrie Ann Moss wins the movie for me. Cause I think really, I mean, if you're going to talk about there's four, there's, you know, Keanu, Lawrence Fishburne, Carrie Ann Moss, and then Hugo Weaving, 
are the four biggest names that have the most screen time in this film. And Keanu Reeves, I mean, we've already talked about it. I would rather watch Point Break. I would rather watch John Wick. So it, he can't really win this for me in that front. Lawrence Fishburne, I actually agree with Brad upon this rewatch. There's something that I just didn't like about Morpheus. And I think, I mean, it can, we can get into that later with kind of what, where I view this film now, because a lot of that comes back to his character and kind of some of the way they write that character. Uh, Hugo Weaving does a really good job as Agent Smith, but he has had a lot of other roles that I will go back to watch more often. And if we jump ahead a couple weeks, uh, we're going to be doing V for Vendetta on this podcast. That's uh, Mike's pick for the month of month of March and 10 times out of 10, I'll take Hugo weaving in that, even though you never see his face, but that's just how good of a performance he gives. So it comes down to the fact that for me, Carrie Ann Moss, though she's been in other things, the matrix is her peak. And I, I don't think for me, anything else comes close. And that is still 22 years later, watching this again, fourth, fifth time. She still carries that. Whereas all the other characters, I, I was still thinking about, there's something I like more here, there. And I just kept coming back to Trinity. Yeah. So as I kind of thought about this after you had uh, brought this up, um, I tend to agree. I think that she actually has probably the best uh, arc in the movie. Yeah, I think, I mean, and it, it goes back to the opening scene. And it's not just the action. I think the opening scene, even without dialogue, has some of the best writing in the film for me, again, upon this rewatch, because the confidence that she has in her fighting, the ease that she has while she's running across the rooftops, and then even when it comes down to the dialogue in that action scene, when she dives through the window and she's laying there and she's kind of coaching herself up, you know, to get up, Trinity, just get up. And that that's that those just those few words felt very powerful to me in her delivery in her performance and it was just right there off the top i was like wow i forgot how awesome she is and that carried through the whole movie for me is do we have any love for joey pants <laughs> anybody want to give a shout out i thought he i thought he did a fine job in the role um particularly the the uh, the the scene where he is um just enjoying that steak, right? Uh, I mean, but but he sells it so well. I, at least I thought he did. You see him just looking at that steak, cooked, you know, a solid medium rare. And it just, I, I do think that, that he does a good job of saying like, look, you know, he says ignorance is bliss in that, but he really plays to that of saying the, the real world is hard. And, you know, I've regretted the decision of the route that I took since I took it. Um, and I don't want to think, I don't want to have to worry about anything. I just want to be, uh, in a, you know, oblivious to everything. And so I think from that standpoint, he plays, plays it well. The character plays it solidly. I would say after Hugo Weaving and Carrie Ann Moss, probably my, my third favorite performance uh, in the movie. Yeah. It's interesting. A movie that is so much about, finding out what is real and trying to cut through the illusions. Uh, they cast someone that gives no illusion. The first time he walks on screen, you know, he's going to screw someone over. There is no way that that guy is going to stay on the side of the good guys for the entire film. Uh, but maybe that's just spot on casting as well. So that is a broad overview of the cast uh, in terms of behind the camera. I think it is interesting uh, for the Wachowskis, they they did direct a film prior to this, but this really is their uh, grand arrival to the scene of filmmaking here with The Matrix. And, you know, obviously this thing took off. There's a reason that there was two more films made after this. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to find the exact amount. So, I mean, it $63 million made $466 million. For 1999, for an original property, that is a big profit to turn around and the series itself made a lot of money, but I don't know if we can find, and this is just my opinion, such a hot start for a first film for someone to make 
to just have every film that they made after that be not good at all, in my opinion. I think The Matrix Reloaded is okay. I'll never watch the third Matrix again unless I'm forced to at gunpoint. And every other movie they've made since then has just, in my opinion, been complete garbage. And it's just so... There's so many things in this movie that you can see great filmmaking going on. It's there. And in my opinion, they just never had it again. So it's just so interesting how bright that light burned for, you know, two hours and 16 minutes in 1999 and where it went since is very interesting. They are coming back to do the fourth film. So we'll, we'll see how that plays out, but I don't know if you guys had any thoughts. If you're secretly just big Wachowski fans and I offended either well, one of you, I just in a, in a bit of perhaps foreshadowing though, they, they did write V for Vendetta, right? So they, they did. And now on the fly, I'm going to have to come up with a new trivia question because that was my trivia. Question, but... <laughs> there you go. Well, sorry to ruin that, but, but you, but you know, you said that, that no, uh, no. nothing that they had done ever since I, and we'll talk plenty about that uh, later in the month, but uh, I, I would rather watch that than, than this one. Um, I would completely echo everything you just said about the sequels. Um, Simply put, I went to go see them in the theater, continuing to hope that the potential that there was in this movie, in my opinion, would be capitalized on in a way that would make it all make sense and came away uh, very disappointed. Yeah, I, I agree. Those were not um, they they should have just stopped at this one. Hopefully the fourth one can kind of redeem the the series a little bit. Um, but I want to jump back. I was listening to you guys, you know, talk the last couple of minutes, but I, I want to, and, and Mike, you, you kind of alluded to it, but the importance of that scene with, with Joey pants and the stake, like without that scene, it, it really embodies what I think they're trying to get with society. Like it's the people that are choosing that, that blissful ignorance that keep this machine going. It's that, it's that like, you know, like Mike, you said, I don't want to work. I don't want to know. I don't want to think. I just want to eat this steak. I want to be happy. I want the riches in life. I want, I'm, I'm willing to keep all of these doors closed and, and give up my freedom of life and choice and all of this stuff because you know what, this steak is pretty damn good, and I mm -hmm. don't want to eat this uh, soupy corn-like substance, whatever they were serving them. Like, you know, he's choosing that because, and and they sum it up with ignorance is bliss. But like, that really sums up what I think they're trying to kind of portray society as. Like, it's a bunch of sheep just picking these things because it's nice, it's comfortable, it's, you know, it's, it's what we want. It's that American dream that everyone's striving for. But to get that, you have to be blind to everything else. And I, I, it's such a simple scene that does such a great job of summarizing a lot of what the juxtaposition of the movie is with these people fighting for freedom versus the sheep that just take what they believe to be true, you know, um, it's, it's really well done in such a simple scene. Yeah. You know, I, I think that that's where I walked away disappointed from the movie was they had, I think a really powerful social commentary that could have been laid out much more effectively. And that scene, um, if anything, probably frustrates me because that scene comes so close to what it could have been. And as you were talking, Brad, it also made me think about your uh, dislike of, of Morpheus's character. And, you know, I, I kind of am right there with you. I, I don't know that Morpheus's character is fundamentally different from Cypher with the sole exception that one wants to just be able to, to throw himself into the Matrix and not have to worry. What leaves me lacking with Morpheus's character is just the blind faith of, nope, yep, this is exactly what it is. Uh, and certainly that plays out uh, in the next two movies. I think that there's some similarities between the two. The nuanced characters in the middle with the uncertainty who still have to make the tough decisions are the ones that, that you're drawn to, I think. I, I Yeah, we can... We'll just keep rolling into this now. I, when I... When I said that 
there's those flashes of brilliance that in this film that the Wachowskis could have had that they just almost didn't get there. And then what I think fell apart again, we'll get into this in a couple of weeks. V for Vendetta withstanding the scene with the stake that if they would have tapped into that, I think the, the social commentary that they were trying to have would have had a lasting effect on me upon this rewatch. Now my opinion of this film is that it's a really, really awesome action film that is bogged down because of what they wanted Morpheus to be. Morpheus, if he would have said 10 less lines in this movie, his character would have been 10 times more impactful. Because when I was, when I was getting ready to sit down, you know, I'm always trying to think, like, I wonder what my favorite line is going to be. I wonder what it would be at this point in time. And just kind of instinctively, I, it, I said to myself, it'll probably be something Morpheus said. He, he has a lot of those kind of big, dramatic moments, stuff like that. After about the fifth time, the music lowered and he stared into Neo's eyes and gave some fortune cookie wisdom. I was over it. It, it didn't mean as much to me anymore because he was saying the same thing for two hours and 16 minutes he was just wording it differently. And, you know, when you get down to the end of him saying, you know, him asking Trinity, like, do you believe now? And then when he gets up to, to fight after he's been killed, uh, I guess, and he says he is starting to believe, that should be so epic. And I became tired of hearing Morpheus give these little nuggets because I think the Wachowskis had something in mind that we can make this guy epic. We can make this guy, this mentor, this long lasting character. So we're just going to keep trying to remind people that he's that. And I think less would have been a lot more at this point. And I think that ended up bogging down the social commentary side of the film for me. Yeah. I think the, the thing that bothered me, um, as I'm watching it and, and I'll, we can talk about our thoughts on the movie um, as a whole, but the, I guess the thing that bothered me about that character is that I think the directors needed, they thought we, they were going to need a person to move the plot and to help people understand what was happening. And I feel like had they just maybe even removed that character, if there wasn't a Morpheus, that basically um, Neo was going to become that Morpheus character or what Morpheus could have been in, in beyond. I think that they could have still gotten there even without Morpheus in the role. Like it, they didn't need him to explain what was going on with the Oracle, what was going on with uh, finding Neo with, they could have done all of that with just the acting and scenes where like, like a show like um, um, the one that Bob Odenkirk's in what uh, uh, better call Saul. Yeah. Better call Saul. Better call the Saul. thing about a show like that is they take everything that Morpheus is and they remove it from the show and they let the acting and the subtle moments get you to the point of understanding what's going on. And I feel like they didn't need Morpheus to push the plot along like they thought they were going to. So it, he was a bit redundant in the fact that we could have gotten to that same point of understanding who Neo was even without Morpheus. So I think it was the redundancy of, you know, we didn't need him to explain everything that was happening as it was going on. Um, but they made that choice. They went with it that, that you know, that's fine. Um, but I think that's what took away from the film for me was they could have done it in a much more subtle way with more impact. And I think if you look today, just as you were saying that, what came to mind, someone that does that, I think, really well in their films, maybe his most recent film was Standing, uh, is Christopher Nolan. I think he creates these big films that are action centric in their way, but always have something more going on. They'll give you small pieces, but at the end of the day, you either get the more complicated things or you don't, but they're not going to spoon feed it to you. They're going to give you a movie, and if you find the deeper things, then you do, and if you don't, that's okay too because it's still going to yeah, be Yeah, I, I think 
Christopher Nolan's a great example there because um, they did he did that in um, the Dark Knight with the Butler. You know, he was in there just enough to push it along and help you understand the the real um, the real person behind Batman and who you know who he is and uh, who Bruce Wayne is with. Um, without all of the extra. And I think had they done, had they done something like that with Morpheus where he comes in, just hits a splash here and a splash there. Like, uh, I think it could have done a lot for the movie. Um, but, and it would have removed some of that redundancy. You know, my, my final thought on that would be, had they gone a direction where they sowed a little more doubt um, into Morpheus, if he had a moment where you know he had, is this true uh, believer, had, had bit everything hook, line, and sinker, where there was a more clear moment of kind of like crisis uh, of of faith, so to speak, I, I think that that could have made the character a little bit more powerful, at least for me. But uh, instead, he just kind of rolls on, even when there's the moment where he thinks it's all over. You don't have time because the machines are like tearing into the ship, right? You don't have time to to really comprehend that, and and so I think that it just it left it uh, lacking on my end. So yeah, it seems like we all uh, we kind of came to the same well, conclusion. There I will say, I will say, Ethan, uh, with- had this gone the way that they were, um, uh, I guess, hoping after Will Smith turned it down. Um, Morpheus would not be our least favorite character because the second choice for um, for Neo was uh, Nicolas Cage, and could you could you imagine that <laughs> happening? Um, and the other ones that were considered were Brad Pitt, Val Kilmer, and uh, Johnny Depp. Um, and Depp was actually the Wachowski's first choice. Um, but could you imagine if he, Nick? It says Nick Cage turned it down for family obligations. <laughs> so that would have been uh, something else entirely well, had, had he chosen to play Neo. I, I, I think though that there's time, I mean, Nick Cage, obviously that's a, that would have been a miss, but to look back and I think people bring up the Will Smith thing as a, whoa, Will Smith really swung and missed. Like he should have taken that. That's not always the case. I think for an actor understanding his range, his or her range, and what a film could be, I mean, I I can't say that I think this, because, I mean, late 90s, that's Men in Black, Will Smith. I don't think this was the movie Will Smith should have been doing in the late 90s when he was doing Men in Black and Independence Day. So, to ju- you know, something like that. I mean, Johnny Depp, maybe... I don't know if Brad Pitt would have been right. And Val, Val Kilmer uh, was the but, other one. I mean, I think. And, you know, this is this is Val Kilmer, what, just a year or two, probably uh, three after he had a turn at Batman, uh, somewhere yeah. right in there. I, I mean, I think we can all agree Nick Cage would have been <laughs> the right answer so long as he brought the, yeah. the, the, Con Air, uh, the Con Air accent with him for the role. But short of I, that, not. I was more thinking he should have been his character from Snake Eyes, just as Neo. <laughs> well, the other, yeah. the other. Oh, go ahead, Mike. So I'm. Oh, I was going to say with Will Smith, you know, just to kind of put that to rest, is Will Smith's career better if he does this? I, I don't think so. I mean, right in this era when they're doing these movies, isn't that right around, around the time he's probably putting out Ali and trying to start to move towards um, being a more serious, uh, you know, kind of actor who diversifies away from just action right i don't feel like will like will smith does this and his career is better for it if anything it might have actually damaged his brand and more pigeonholed him in this area yeah i, I think to answer your question I, I say no i don't think it would have done much to uh to help his career i mean i i don't think he needs much help in any way like he's he's had a an amazing career and uh, yeah i don't think that this did nearly as much. It did much more for Keanu Reeves than it um, would have done for Will Smith, for sure. Now, I will say, I did pull up Will Smith's filmography, and if you want to put it in a vacuum, in 1999 he came yeah. out with Wild Wild West instead of The Matrix. <laughs> so maybe just in one quick glance, yeah, that is what, he lost on. Yeah, that that's one, why he turned I it agree. down was to make Wild Wild West, and. Uh, 
the other uh, casting I, I uh, what if too that we didn't talk about was um, uh, Michael Jackson's sister Janet Jackson was <laughs> the one that was approached for the role of Trinity um, and turned it down. Are you serious? No, I, I am serious. The yeah. <laughs> she was first approached uh, and turned it down before they went to Carrie Ann Moss. So um, it would have been Will Smith and Janet Jackson in those roles um, if if they had gotten their way. Uh, that that would have been a different movie. That 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 is for certain. So that I think that kind of pretty much covers all of the. Uh, in front of the camera, behind the camera, some of our thoughts about the film on that front. Uh, we still have a little bit more to cover there. I think we kind of talked before we hit record, music-wise, I think the only thing that stood out to me was how the Rage Against the Machine song at the end did not fit this movie, and I'm not sure what left field they pulled that song out of, but that was there. I don't know if there was anything else you guys wanted to hit in music. It seemed like the music just really wasn't as much of a impact in this film as it had been in some previous films yeah the the only thing i really want to get into as i'm looking through it they they definitely um they hit some of those mid to late 90s um what we call my uh, you know, underground stars like the 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 scene stood out to me was the the nightclub and i felt like it was very stereotyped you know of course all the people wearing black leather all the people had uh, tattoos, all the people had, you know, uh, nose rings or, you know, just tons of piercings and things like that. It was, it was very, um, I don't know, like I, like I said earlier, stereotyped. And then you've got, you know, the, the music playing in the background that was, uh, stuff like, you know, Rob Zombie's in this, Marilyn Manson, Monster Magnet, Ramstein, Rage Against the Machine, um, I mean, for me, uh, of those that stand out, really, uh, Rage is probably my my favorite of those bands. But, but definitely set a tone for what that type of scene was was like in the in the late '90s. So, they they definitely hit it, you know, spot on. But at the same time, looking back, you kind of roll your eyes at like, wow, there was a segment of our population that was into this music and this lifestyle at that time, and um, it just kind of shows you where we can be in uh, little fragments of time yeah, looking back. Yeah, not uh, not my favorite period of time of music for, for sure. I, as I looked through the soundtrack listing, um, it's uh, some people's cup of tea, but but uh, not mine. You don't uh, you don't work out to do host when you're uh, when you're running there, Mike. Uh, I, I do not. I, I listen to high quality podcasts like this one <laughs> and sprinkle in some oh, Billy Joel. There we go. Well, only when I need an extra speed boost there, Brad. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Mike, what happened in the world of Chicago sports in 1999? Well, we're back around to Michael Jordan retiring again. <laughs> uh, he retired. He, he the NBA actually was in a lockout, and so for that reason, after winning their sixth title in the summer of 98, uh, Jordan's actual official retirement uh, leaked into early 1999. Um, but beyond that, it was a fairly unremarkable year, as I recall, in Chicago sports. Uh, so in case anyone is new to the podcast, we do like to take a quick dive into the year the film came out, and we've just realized that so far uh, – our show coincides with big happenings in the world of Chicago sports. So we always go to Mike for that. Uh, Brad is usually our more, uh, maybe some of our more impactful tidbits of information from the year. So uh, Brad, I'll let you take it away with uh, maybe some more important things. Yeah, of course the big theme throughout that entire year was uh, bracing ourselves for the Y2K, Y2K uh, world ending uh, computer glitch you know, that, uh, was supposed to happen that, that, uh, did not, you know, there's a few minor things here and there, but overall it was a big, uh, much to do about nothing. Um, that was the year that, uh, Bill Clinton, um, his, the impeachment trial, uh, began in, uh, he was acquitted of perjury and obstruction of justice. Um, that was the same time also that, um, I, I don't know if this is 
still true today, but at the time was the uh, most watched news show of, uh, or I guess ever, um, with 74 million people tuning in for at least six minutes or more of the Monica Lewinsky interview on 2020 with Barbara Walters. So that was a big, uh, a big one for that year. Um, one simple thing I came across that I, I thought was interesting. It was the, um, first year that the state of Montana had a speed limit on the interstate. Um, their state says that they encourage drivers to be reasonable and prudent. Um, so I just want to pause on that for a second and just think like, what would, what would it be like if, if we did just remove, um, speed limits on the interstate? Like what are, what are your guys' thoughts on that? Can people be reasonable and prudent? Well, have you ever driven in Montana, Brad? I have not. Uh, I actually, 1999, that summer, I was out in Montana. I, of course, was not so you're driving. The reason, I was are you riding. the reason they have a speed limit now, Mike? <laughs> well, no, it was the person I was traveling with had driven out there quite a bit, had uh, had a daughter that lived out there and uh, was talking about it. And it, there are no cars out there for a long stretches of very straight road. So I think that that's why they had done it. I don't know that it would work as well, maybe where we live. Um, but I can tell you, I would probably be... Um, more prudent now than I would have been, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Hmm. Very, uh, yeah, I just, I found that to be interesting. So uh, the most popular film that year was uh, Star Wars Phantom Menace. Um, it did not win. It did not win uh, Best Picture. Yuck. Ethan, do you happen to know, or did you come across what what did win in 1999? Uh I I will say that that, that wasn't the movie was that it? won would not have been what I picked, but um, are these the Oscars that took place? This is in the one that won like in nineteen ninety-nine. That is the one. Yes, oh, Shakespeare in Love. Um. Yep. Very, very good job there. Beating yes, out. Yes, that uh, is the one that I believe should game. have gotten the uh, award that year. Yeah. I think a lot of people would agree. Um, as Mike said, it is the year that Jordan announced his retirement from the NBA. Um, one thing I, I found interesting here where they give some prices, uh, an average ticket for a Boston Red Sox game that year was $28 and 33 cents. Um, you could get a one day ticket to Disney, uh, for $41 and the average ticket price for a Denver Broncos game was $49. And keep in mind, they were the uh, Super Bowl champs that year. So that was uh, um, pretty interesting how much those prices have gone up. But I guess that also coincides with how much we're paying these athletes. So um, it, I guess, should be the case. If we're going to be okay with them making that kind of money, then we're going to have to dish it out a little bit. But um Another thing I stumbled across, <laughs> the top five TV shows, there were actually only three shows in the top five. Um, that's because one show carried the top three spots. Um, does anyone know what that show was in 1999? I Hosted by Regis mm -mm. Philbin. Who wants to be a millionaire? <sighs> um, it held the, yes, it held the top three spots uh, because it was on Tuesday night, Thursday night, and Sunday night. ABC cashed out that year. Let me tell you, they uh, they definitely um, took a good thing and just ran it into the ground. Um, but it held the top three spots of the top five TV shows, rounded out by uh, ER and Friends for the other two shows in the top five. Um, and then we, we like to go to um, celebrity deaths or, you know, famous people that uh, are no longer with us after that year. Um, bear with me just a second. Cause I lost my spot in the notes. Um, so Ethan, you might need to cut this part out. Um, okay. So famous people who died in 1999. Um, really the, the one that stood out here that would probably affect Ethan the most was uh, film director, Stanley Kubrick died that year. Um, Joe DiMaggio, baseball player. Um, John F. Kennedy Jr. passed away that year. Um, and uh, 
two athletes that kind of stood out to me were uh, Wilt Chamberlain and Payne Stewart. Um, both both passed mm-hmm. away that year. Um, I can't remember if I remember right. Payne Stewart had an accident, um, but I, I don't remember the details around. Yeah, it was that. a. I believe that it was a plane crash where the the plane actually lost pressure, if I'm not mistaken, and so everybody passed out on the plane prior to the plane crashing. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I mean, I I, I remember the plane crash part now. I'm glad to know now about the the cabin pressure thing because that makes it um, more bearable. It seems as you're gonna you know hear that story that at least hopefully those people did not suffer. Um, but yeah, like uh, interesting year for sure, um, and really like I said, highlighted um, by the the Y2K preparations that uh, a lot of people were going through to, to try to survive the, the year, the calendar year switching to 2000. Interesting stuff. <laughs> could, could, could always, you say that anymore? Uh, so as we transition, <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't. I was reading, <laughs> I was multitasking and I lost my spot where I was reading in my notes. Let me try that again. Uh, interesting stuff, as always, uh, looking into 1999. Uh, so as we get back in, and don't, like I said, and don't cut Mike that out of my trivia question. I, I, think that, uh, I think that that's uh, good to see how much you just don't give a crap about anything we're saying. I mean, 1999 was not an important year to Ethan, uh, Brad, not nearly as much as it was to you or me. So, well, yeah, that's the, the year I, I graduated high school and started college and, you know, kind of t- took on this new journey in life. So, yeah, it was a huge year for me. Um, and what Ethan said, he was still wearing diapers, I think. So makes sense. <laughs> OK, pull ups. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> Yeah, I guess I don't really. Know. I don't remember, but I feel like I was a pretty advanced kid. I mean, come on, I you think I was you were myself you were uh, uh, defecating I mean, in your pants at ni- nineteen. <laughs> no, 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 no. All right, so we're not going to do a trivia question this week because Mike already got it right. We're but hold on, do I do I get a point for that? Is what the people want to know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Since you got it before I even asked, all right, it, fantastic. Uh, but you do have to go first in the Rotten Tomatoes game this week with your question. So this is what we're going to do every week. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes, if you don't know what that is, it's just kind of an aggregate score of uh, how critics feel about a film. And we are going based off of the critics' score. Uh, so, Mike, what was the critics' score on a scale of one to, uh, 0 to 100 percentage-wise for... The Matrix in 1999. Do you guys think that it would help in this game if I gave you the fan score, or would that hurt? I think I I think it's fine, at least for this week, since we didn't do the fan score first um, last time. I feel like I feel like this was fairly well received by the critics, but I'm going to peg it uh, as less so than uh, than our movies last week. I will go. I'm going to go with 81. Uh, the number that 81. popped in my head was Bradley. 74. Uh, so I don't, maybe your guys' uh, guesses are reflecting how I'm kind of thinking we're subconsciously feeling about this film today because it currently sits at an 88% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, I think last week I said that to win you had to be within okay. three points either way. You, you did say three, Some three or five or whatever it is. So even yep. though Mike, even though Mike was closer, I don't think I can give out a point this week for the Rotten Tomatoes game. And but I think we can all agree, looking at it, that that is sitting a little high. Uh, I think. Can I tackle that first? And especially if you on IMDb, so. Yeah, sure. I actually disagree with my score that I picked for the critics. Um, I I don't think I've really said much good stuff about this film uh, overall, except for how it holds up. But that does not actually reflect how I feel about watching it this time around. I was actually really impressed. Um, 
part of that was because I watched it from a different viewpoint. I I didn't have to take take in all the action. I didn't have to get all the details because I'd seen those before. So I was really trying to understand how they portrayed the message of the film, um, which to me is two different things. It's uh, existentialism and it's the philosopher's journey. And if I didn't know anything about either one of those topics, especially, especially existentialism, I, I think that the film did a really good job of kind of showing you the entire process of how to get through the steps to figure out, you know, reality from, um, your reality and your freedom based on things that, uh, um, you may be told to believe or expected to believe. So, uh, for any listener that doesn't know, it's, uh, it's like the approach which emphasizes, I'm, I'm reading the dictionary thing here now. It's the approach which emphasizes the existence of the individual person as a free and responsible agent, determining their own development through acts of the will. Um, so if that's what the movie is about at its core, I think this film does a really great job of showing that while throwing in some thinkers, some confusion, con confusion points there. Um, but overall I thought really, really well done. Um, I enjoyed it more this time than I ever have. And like I said, I think it holds up. I think that, uh, it's, it's rewatchable. I think that, um, overall I would just be I would I would give it a pretty high grade as far as uh, how we've been doing these films. I still don't know that it um, has knocked off Deadpool for me as our favorite that we've done. And I, I did put that on our social media for people to go on and rank the films of their favorites that we've done so far. And uh, as I was thinking through that, Deadpool was my um, leader in the clubhouse. And I think that it's still right, right there, but... Uh, for me, the matrix is going to come in and it's either going to be two behind that or maybe three behind old school. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I did enjoy this a lot and it, it, it does hold up and I, I would, um, I would, uh, give it a pretty high grade, uh, when we get, if we get to that in the show today. Uh, yeah, fair enough. I think when, when I started to say that, uh, maybe some things had it ranked a little high, if you go to IMDB, uh, which, in my opinion, the most, some of the most egregious issues with ranking films, uh, according to IMDb, this is the 16th highest rated film of all time. Uh, I, I think there's probably at least 16 films that maybe have been made better than the matrix. Uh, but that is where it sits right now, uh, on IMDb. But, um, I could, I completely see where you're coming from, Brad. I think, uh, just, that, well, back to some of the things we've said, before in terms of some things that bog it down, but there are plenty of things I did enjoy. And I think like you said, you, you felt like a lot of what, what we talked about tonight has been the negative side of it. There's plenty of positives and we can get into that now with favorite line, favorite scene, what has held up for me. And I've said this many of times tonight is the action and it is so enjoyable to watch the action scenes in this film and just marvel at, how they pulled this off as basically first time directors on not a huge budget with an original idea to, to do this. So let's, let's start with favorite line and I'll go first. Uh, it is from my favorite character. I, I said, you know, I wondered heading into it, would it be a Morpheus line? Cause he has all those little nuggets and those little things, blah, blah, blah. Mine's very basic. And there we go. There's my co-host Hallie making her presence known. Um, my line is very basic, but I think it is the most badass thing that gets said in this film, and it is simply dodge this. Uh, that moment of, like, you get the cool moment that everybody remembers of Neo dodging the bullets uh, for the first time and showing off that power, and her coming over, stating that, shooting the agent in the head, and just in that moment, it, it would it's hard for me to think of many characters in film that have been more badass by saying two words 
than she did right then and there. So that's my favorite line. Like I said, pretty basic, pretty simple, but dodge this. Uh, Mine also was very simple and it was um, uh, Neo saying guns, lots of them. And uh, then that that rack of guns shows up behind him um, in that uh, situational room where they can, you know, kind of upload anything that they want. Um, I just, I found that to be, um, yeah, just kind of one of those uh, badass lines that as they're getting ready to go into that uh, that final fight scene at the end. So, um, yeah, that one's that's the one that stood out to me. Uh, I'm gonna give a, a shout out to to my boy Cipher with uh, I, I know what you're thinking because right now I'm thinking the same thing. Actually, I've been thinking it ever since I got here. Why? Oh, why didn't I take the blue pill? <laughs> yes, that was definitely a good one too. Uh, okay, so along with favorite line, uh, favorite scene, go, who would like I to take go this first, one first? on on that, uh, if that works for you guys, we'll go maybe in reverse order. But uh, for me, I think it has to be um, the scene, the fight scene uh, in, the, in the train station uh, between Agent Smith and Neo, when instead of running like he's been told, he turns to face him um, and really kind of in that sense starts to lean into, look, I may not be the one, but I'm going to do whatever it takes to go down swinging. Um, Mine is actually two scenes, but I'm going to say them together because I think that uh, they go hand in hand. And it's the two scenes where um, uh, Keanu had just learned... um, uh, Kung Fu, I think it was, um, if I'm getting my martial arts correct, and him and uh, Morpheus mm-hmm. are battling in the in the dojo there, um, and I I just for whatever reason I've just always enjoyed um, him trying to teach uh, Keanu how to just let it go and get that you know get the most out of himself because he's doesn't have to live within the parameters of what he thinks he can do, and then taking that and showing the how it changes at the end when you um add the the love portion it took the the love of um uh, trinity to unlock him as um the one uh the chosen one and then you see him doing that same fight scene with agent smith um and now he he can block all of the punches as though it's almost slow motion because he has kind of unlocked that portion of himself. So um, that showing those two together and just seeing how that character morphed into what he became at the end was, was just really cool for me. Yeah. So my favorite thing I alluded to earlier, how, uh, I mean, we all said how amazing it was the effects holding up. And I said that my favorite scene uh, was a part of that. My favorite scene is, uh, you know, they go in, it's right after my favorite line. Uh, they fly in to save Morpheus. You get uh, Neo finally just kind of, he's not thinking, he's just reacting to jump out of the helicopter and catch him. Uh, but then the helicopter crash itself. And again, Neo landing on the roof and again, not thinking, just reacting. And that's when uh, Tank, I think, that's, he's, that's when he realizes, he says, he is the one. And it's because he just in an instant grabs that cord and just lets that helicopter drag him because that's the one chance he's going to have to save Trinity. And when that helicopter hits that building, I I would have never imagined that's the way a glass building with the ripple effect of the glass before it shatters. But that shot, that scene to, to do the digital effects, to create that in 1999 and for that to not look bad at all. That is as intense as I'm sure it was when people saw it in theaters in 99, that building, the way it shakes, and then seeing Trinity swinging away from it when it just blows into a billion pieces and she hits the other side of that building. Uh, That is not only just an awesome action scene, but I think that really is, you're seeing the moments of Neo starting to really think he may have these powers that everyone has told him that he has. So the helicopter crash uh, is my favorite scene from the film. Uh, We've come to the end here. Uh, Brad, 
yeah, I guess I'll let you kind of go back and just really put a bow on the thoughts you were sharing earlier. What we like to say is, does this get your stamp of approval? Someone comes to you today in March of 2021 and says, hey, you know, I heard The Matrix 4 is coming out this year. Uh, I've never seen it. Should I go watch The Matrix? Is it is it worth the time to sit and watch it? And I, I think I know. Uh, yeah, I would say going, absolutely. So I would first. then follow that up by saying um, maybe go see the second one, avoid the third one, and definitely check out the fourth one to see um, how they pull this off 20 years later, um, 22 years later. Um, but yeah, definitely give it the stamp of approval. So as uh, Mike, you probably could tell through most of this, not, not the biggest fan, wasn't the biggest fan back uh, when the movie came out, uh, not the biggest fan now. I will say this, on rewatch, I, I prior to rewatching this, probably would not have gone out of my way to see the fourth one when it's released. As I sit here today, I can tell you that when it is released, I intend to watch it because they've hooked me back in enough that I am hoping that something that they can do in this fourth one will deliver on all of the promise that Brad talked about in terms of the philosophy behind this uh, in, a, in an impactful and meaningful way. And so uh, to that end, if someone were to say, I've never seen it, should I see it? I would say, yep, go ahead and see it. Uh, I would probably recommend that they leave the other two uh, completely. And then we'll see what the fourth one brings. Um, but yeah, the, the action sequences hold up uh, on the whole. I'll never be a huge fan. However, I can see how some people are. And yeah, I'll echo a lot of what Mike said. I think uh, my recommendation would be watch this for how amazing it is that a film 22 years old looks the way that it does. The action scenes are note perfect. I don't have a single complaint about that, especially as someone who is a fan of action and I think at this, I would just say, don't watch the second and the third one. The, what little rumors I've heard about the fourth one is that they are trying to go back to the roots of the original and create something new. So to me, that says that it is not just picking up at the end of the third one, which I think would be a huge mistake for obviously something that's, you know, that third one's going to be almost 20 years old as well by then. Uh, so I would say watch the first one. And like Mike, I, I didn't really care that there was going to be a fourth one, but after seeing this, after seeing those little hints of how great certain parts of this film could be and what we've seen, especially recently from Keanu Reeves, I'm all in to watch the fourth one when it comes out. But the first one is what we were talking about now, and it does get three out of three. Once again, the stamp of approval to go check this one out uh, next week. We will be shifting gears yet again. Uh, we are going to talk about uh, Spike Lee, Denzel Washington, Jodie Foster is going to pop up once again, uh, along with Clive Owen in Inside Man. And what I personally think is one of the most underappreciated films of the last, we'll say 20 years. It came out in 2006. If you haven't seen it, I'll give you the stamp of approval now. Go check it out before we talk about it next week so that you can join in that conversation because I think this one uh, is going to get some rave reviews when we talk about it. But that's for next week. This week was The Matrix. We hope you enjoyed this. Uh, join in that conversation. Hop on the Facebook page. Give us a like there. Subscribe to the show when you're listening to it here. Leave a comment on the iTunes page, on the Spotify page, wherever you're listening to it. Join in the conversation. That's why we do this. Obviously, we like hearing ourselves talk. That's why we have a podcast. We also like hearing other people talk, too. So converse with us. Let us know what you think about The Matrix, what you thought back then, what you think now. And again, get ready next week for Inside Man. But for right now, I'm Ethan Klein. For Mike Duranik and Brad Miller, we will say have a great week. Thank you for joining us. And my oh my, if you would have taken that blue pill. We'll see you next time. <laughs>